Hello, and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. For those of you who are listening for the first time, this podcast is a new project created by the ABA Section on Dispute Resolution, where one of three hosts have a conversation with members of the dispute resolution community about various topics of interest to the field of dispute prevention and resolution. I'm one of your hosts, Adam Martin. And this first season, we'll be speaking with several presenters at the Dispute Resolution Section's Spring Conference about the topics of their presentations. This week, I'll be talking with Stephanie Cohen. Stephanie is a Canadian arbitrator of international and domestic commercial disputes based in New York City. She received her bachelor's at McGill University and her JD at the University of Toronto before beginning her career as an associate at White & Case. She became counsel at White & Case in 2011 and has been an independent arbitrator at Cohen Arbitration since 2012. Good afternoon, Steph, and thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Adam. Um, Before we get started with our discussion about arbitration, cybersecurity, is there anything that you'd like to add about your background? Well, I, um, you know, it might be interesting to note that I'm a a little bit on the younger side. Um, Most of the the folks I know who've gone out on their own as arbitrators um, are either doing it as a as a second second career or at a much uh, certainly at a much later stage of their career. I went out on my own and hung my shingle uh, after practicing international arbitration at White and Case for uh, a decade, uh, and have now been on my own for uh, seven years. That's that's really impressive, and I was I was going to mention something about you being particularly young, but since you've been doing it for seven years now, it doesn't really it doesn't seem as as new, I suppose. Right, I'm not I'm not necessarily that young, but I still I still hit the under forty five mark. So, <laughs> right. um, so you've you've practiced in a broad range of topics, focusing I think primarily on arbitration, international litigation. Um, And today we'll be talking more about the issue of cybersecurity and arbitration in particular. Um, But I was hoping you'd talk a little bit about how you did make the transition, first going to um, a private practice and then working your way up as an associate and then making that switch from private practice to uh, being a solo arbitrator. Sure. Um, Well, you know, I I was always uh, of the mind um, that there were – that there's a market um, for international experienced international arbitration counsel uh, to handle smaller disputes. I uh, became involved with ICC Canada when I was about a fourth or fifth year associate on the recommendation of one of the Paris-based partners in White and Case who uh, had joined ICC Canada, and um, they at the time in 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 looking to diversify the arbitrator roster for ICC cases. We're looking for um, people who were linked to some of the big firms and would sort of have uh, mentors in the background, but had um, significant experience at that stage with international arbitration, having practiced uh, at, a, at a big firm. Um, and it was really sort of through that that I got my first cases as an arbitrator. Uh, so the appointments came through ICC Canada while I was an associate at White and Case. Uh, I think I might even have been on maternity leave when I got uh, the first arbitrator appointment. And that really sort of started getting me thinking about the market for the smaller cases, because that's those are the cases that the ICC was trying to make um, appoint, arbitrator appointments on and to sort of diversify the roster and, and be able to bring younger 
uh, practitioners uh, into the fold. And so when I decided to leave White in Case, my intention was really to set up um, a, a boutique to handle those cases as counsel. Um, but within about two weeks of leaving White and Case, I got another arbitrator appointment from ICC Canada, and I thought, you know, this is really more what I want to do. Um, and so I started to think about um, building sort of a business plan to really just uh, work on the arbitrator appointments, and I haven't done any counsel work at all since leaving White and Case. Uh, I just you know, sort of set my set my sights on on becoming a full time arbitrator. It's interesting, and I I think it's it's kind of interesting to me, particularly that you you weren't entirely sure if you were going to go as a counsel or as solo arbitrator right out, and that that was kind of just something that it seemed like, from what you told me, it seems like it just kind of happened, and that's you kept getting appointments, and then you decided after after you left to continue being a civil arbitrator. Um, were you, while you were still at White and Case, did you think of, did you set out in your mind, like, eventually I want to be an arbitrator full-time and start build, building those blocks, or is there was there something else that you were thinking that you are going to do as more of a transitional stage? Not, not at all. In fact, you know, most of the time that I was working um, at White and Case, I didn't, I didn't even ever really think about leaving White and Case because I was just working. Um, and, it, and it wasn't until, you know, I sort of got into a later stage and started to have, uh, you know, a young family that I started to, um, you know, think about what I might like to do a little bit differently. But I knew I wanted to be practicing international arbitration. Um, and, uh, and, and so it was really sort of a, you know, a pivot um, to the arbitrator practice. It's, you know, something I was fortunate enough to get the opportunity to, to, to do having gotten an appointment, you know, initial appointment through ICC Canada, but it, but it really was sort of, you know, like a light bulb went off and I thought, you know, why don't I, why don't I try this? But, you know, once I sort of made that decision, I did have to sort of think about business plan, how I was going to actually attract the business, had to convince my husband that, <laughs> that um, not taking counsel work was a good idea because uh, I certainly was getting, um, you know, calls from people um, very quickly after I left the firm. Um, again, you know, thinking that there was a market for some of these smaller cases. Those were the kinds of things people wanted to refer. Uh, and so I really had to kind of justify and think about how I was going to make it make it work and how I was going to build the practice as an, as an arbitrator. And talking a little bit about how you how you have built the practice since you've become a, a solo arbitrator. Have you found that you've been trying to to focus on particular subject matter, even within international arbitration, and become kind of a specialist in a particular area? Well, you know, so much of, of I think um, getting cases at the outset can, you know, especially if you're if you're not transitioning from um, from a subject matter expertise. You know, I was really trying to trade on my procedural background, the background that I already had in international arbitration rather than um, particular subject matters. And um, so when I, you know, started to pivot, you know, some so much of it is actually kind of luck, um, you know, to get the first couple of cases. And then and then it's trying to build on some of the subject matter expertise and so on as you get more cases. 
Um, but what I've what I've found is that um, I really have have had a, a fairly broad uh, range of commercial cases. Um, well, there are some you know repeat repeat subject matters um, that it it consistently I think is the the procedural uh, element that uh, I think is sort of highlighted. Um, I, I started getting cases as sole arbitrator, and then that quickly transitioned. Um, into getting cases as chair. And I think the linkage there really was the the background um, and procedural uh, experience in, in international arbitration. Well, as I was kind of reviewing your, your CV and your publications before this, I noticed that um, over the last couple of years in particular, you've been writing more and more on um, cybersecurity, which is kind of the topic that we're we're here to discuss. But um, what first drew you to that issue in particular, and what led you to kind of write more about that? Well, moving from a, a big law firm to all of a sudden uh, being on your own, uh, you have to start thinking quite a bit about how you set up your practice environment. And uh, I found that I was thinking more and more about how I could leverage technology and how I could be more efficient, and as I started to get to know some of um, some of the well-established arbitrators in New York better, I felt more comfortable uh, asking them questions about what tools they were using and how they set up their practice environments. And uh, I started to have conversations, in particular, with with two arbitrators here in New York, uh, Edna Sussman and Mark Morell, and uh, the three of us in talking about some of these tech tools um, led to discussions that Mark and I had a a bit more about cybersecurity because that was something that I kept coming back to and that Mark kept coming back to when we were having these conversations about uh, technology is, you know, are you storing your, your case files in the, in the cloud? And if so, what measures do you have in place to protect it? Is that something you should be discussing with, with the parties? Does there have to be any kind of consent? Um, and if not, you know, how and why are you comfortable doing that? Have you, you know, looked at any resources that that um, sort of make you feel that this is an okay thing to do, that this is something that parties would um, would expect? And so the cybersecurity discussion is really something that, that um, evolved out of those practice management discussions. And, um, as Mark and I um, started to talk about it um, more, um, one of the things that, that kept popping up was um, sort of two ideas. One is this notion that arbitrators are the weakest link. Um, and the second is um, is this idea um, that um, – sorry, just Lost my lost my train of thought there, but on the the weakest link, um, it'll come back to me in a second. But on the weakest link um, point, what we what we noticed is that when we were talking to people about cybersecurity, is that we started to get this reaction of you know sort of why do I why do I care and what does this have to do with me? Isn't this something for the parties um, to take care of? And um, that arbitrators. Um, because they're on their own more often than not, that they are the sort of weakest link in, in cybersecurity. 
And those sort of two ideas um, about, you know, whose responsibility it is and, um, you know, arbitrators don't really have the responsibility and the idea that arbitrators are the weakest link are two sort of ideas that we in particular wanted to uh, think about a bit further and flesh out. And that led to an article um, that we wrote about the nature and scope of the arbitrator's uh, cybersecurity duty, um, which uh, which we called a call to cyber arms. Um, and we attacked, I think, the notion that any one participant in the arbitral process can be the weakest link um, to try and focus on the idea that cybersecurity is really a shared responsibility uh, and that anyone can be the weakest link. And then secondly, you know, we responded to to the, the suggestion that, that um, this isn't really a question of responsibility that arbitrators have. Um, by by trying to underpin um, the basis of an ethical duty that's that arises from other existing and, and well-established duties like the arbitrator's duty of confidentiality, so that even if other actors in the process, like counsel, have uh, independent obligations, uh, we wanted to sort of set the stage for why we think um, arbitrators have an independent responsibility, in fact, of driving. Uh, responsibility to as as the uh, you know the the leader in the arbitration process um, to make sure that there's attention uh, paid to the issue. Um, that doesn't mean that that this is not something for parties to be driving in individual cases, but it it means from from our perspective um, that that you can't just wash your hands and and ignore it. Um, Confidentiality is, is so important in the arbitration process, and users rightfully expect that um, that as arbitrators we are going to take steps to safeguard the privacy and confidentiality of of the proceedings, um, including things such as our intertribunal communications and drafts. And if we're going to maintain user confidence in the process then even before you set foot in an individual case, you, you you can and should be thinking about your digital practice environment and uh, the steps that you're taking to, to safeguard cybersecurity. And I think one thing that kept coming to mind when I was, when I was reading um, what you wrote about cybersecurity was that I think for a lot of people, cybersecurity as a term means a, a broad range of different things. So I know, when I'm when I'm talking to like my grandmother about you know don't click on this email with someone offering you a million dollars if you give me your bank account that to me that's in the realm of cybersecurity but it's also you know these big issues these mega companies when they're losing um, account information for millions of subscribers or um, a government agency they also have cybersecurity concerns. So when when we're talking about cybersecurity here, like what are some of the practical issues that you see as it relates to arbitration of the, pra- the practice of law? So cybersecurity is really, uh, in essence, about the integrity of the data. And so when you talk about, you know, the grandmother, the example with your grandmother, um, you know, phishing, phishing attempts, uh, those kinds of mali- malicious uh, actor influences attempts to sort of intrude on the arbitral system. Um, th- those are definitely within the realm of of what we have to be uh, concerned about. 
not all uh, data breaches arise from hacking in the sense of targeted um, attacks. Those, you know, could arise depending on the, the nature and sensitivity of the information that's being handled and, and the, the parties that are involved. I and mean, then certainly as arbitrators, we can handle highly uh, sensitive matters and we often have information that can move markets. And uh, so it's not outside of the realm of, of possibility that specific matters could be targeted by hackers. But um, the opportunistic um, sort of um, access to information through something like, you know, the, the phishing, the phishing email where someone gets access inadvertent through, you know, inattention or um, inadvertence gets access to the the information that that we hold um, as as arbitrators or as counsels and in our counsel and in arbitration um, that also is is implicated when we're sort of talking about the cybersecurity. So it's the range of both thinking about the malicious actors and also you know our individual um, conduct and human human error. You know, phishing is an, is a great example of uh, of something that requires the, the human to, to make a mistake and click on, you know, click on the suspicious uh, email for the malicious threat to sort of get into a network or a system. Um, and, you know, this could also, you know, so a, a, a data breach could arise from that type of circumstance, but it can also arise from, um, from putting the, the password uh, on a post-it note and attaching it to the USB key that a legal assistant sends to the arbitrator when making uh, submissions. Um, that's also um, a way in which someone can get easily get a hold of um, of arbitration-related information without having authorized access. So cybersecurity really sort of you know brings all of those different uh, elements together, both the inadvertent and the malicious. It's interesting. I never would have thought of something that's so kind of analog as leaving your password written down somewhere that falls within the, the definition cybersecurity. But it, to me, it illustrates how, just how broad the issues are and how, how broad um, a practitioner's awareness needs to be of these variety of issues. Um, and stop me if this next question starts to get into your, um, your presentation topic too much, but um, do you see there do you see there to be a, a list of kind of best practices for attorneys or arbitrators dealing with uh, cybersecurity issues? And I think that means every attorney nowadays, because I think everyone that practices deals in some fashion or another with um, data privacy or cybersecurity. Well, I think, you know, the, the notion of, um, of best practices gets, um, gets a little bit, a little bit tricky because, Technology is always changing. The threats that we're responding to are always changing. And anytime we try and sort of nail down, um, you know, the, the, the best practices, we have the issue that, that we're not dealing with sort of a one-size-fits-all um, situation uh, in terms of, you know, shoring up uh, your systems. It all sort of depends on, you know, what you're using and, and what you're doing. But that being said, um, there certainly are a number of, of things that sort of fall into the category of, um, you know, good, good hygiene. And, you know, a basic example is, um, 
managing managing your passwords using complex passwords, um, not writing down your passwords uh, so so that someone can easily obtain them. And I think uh, to sort of draw that that home that it, that a lot of the cybersecurity things that we can do um, are really that fundamental. Um, the some of the examples that we've heard of of, of um, hacks in recent years are all tied back to these very basic things like the password management. So the Sony, uh, the Sony hack, um, reportedly there was an executive who had a, a file of passwords uh, available in plain text, um, failing to patch your software. So when you get those uh, alerts on your computer that say there's an update available to your operating system, um, failure to implement those kinds of patches um, that has led to to, uh, to to hacks, to well-known publicized hacks. Um, so I would say things like password management, you know, having a good sense of what what data you have and where it's located, um, so you can deal with, you know, have a sense of what it is that you have to protect. Uh, using firewalls and antivirus and anti-malware software, which are your basic sort of perimeter um, protection, that's that's pretty basic. Um, and turning on something like full disk encryption is pretty important. So a lot of our computers and uh, devices um, are set up so that when you input a, a particular password, it essentially makes your computer a brick um, if somebody finds it and isn't able to, to, input, uh, to input that particular password. Um, and that is something that you are prompted to do on any new Mac device these days. I'm not sure if it's a default um, when you buy a new PC, but it's certainly available on on PCs um, to be able to implement that as well. And, and those are those are some examples of some of the sort of basic um, basic basic hygiene um, tips that I would uh, that I would highlight. Uh, you raise an excellent point that is kind of a reminder to me. I think I've been clicking that update later button for a while now, so I'm going to go update all my all my software after we get off this call. <laughs> um, now, this is this is a little bit more of a, a worst case scenario question, but do you see what what would you advise is the first thing to do when you realize a breach has occurred, or what are some of the things you can do as far as damage control? Right. So one of the um, one of the sort of um, basic tips that um, that I would make is that hopefully if you ever find yourself into that situation in that situation, you previously sat down and made an incident response plan. So if you are at a big firm, um, you know, you're going to pick up the phone and call the IT department and they are going to have a whole set of policies and procedures in place about um, next steps. If you are uh, a solo and on your own, um, what you really want to be doing is to sort of unfortunately think ahead to this sort of situation is to make sure that you have a list of um, important uh, contacts uh, so that you can mobilize. So, for example, um, I would want to have um, the, the contact information for my anti-malware uh, software. A lot of packages that you might buy as a solo from companies like Malwarebytes 
um, if you buy the professional versions, they have uh, support personnel and you can contact them and they will help, you know, walk through telling you things like disconnect from the Internet and help you figure out um, what next steps you can take, um, knowing what the serial number on your laptop is um, or other devices if they get uh, stolen, um, being able to um, use the the find my iPhone, find my Mac, um, search mechanisms that if you've lost your device and you didn't have on um, the full disk encryption, if it's connected to the internet, you can see where it's located in order to be able to wipe the wipe the device. Um, you can also do that with some uh, you know, cloud services and other things, you might be able to wipe um, information from devices. So those kinds of things are, are um, things that you would identify in your in your response plan so that you're able to uh, not have to have your device in front of you with the information there, um, but have it in a hard copy, have it somewhere where you can access it uh, offline, um, contact of a of a uh, you know, a data privacy lawyer if you're, you know, think you might have to make breach notification. But those are the kinds of things that, that you want to have at your fingertips so that you can deal with that worst case scenario. Um, you have to act pretty quickly. Uh, and if you don't have something um, to help you, then it, it's pretty difficult. Um, the breach notification standards, if, you, if, um, if that's required, um, are all different in different states and you're required to act very quickly, uh, sometimes within, you know, 72 hours under the, the European legislation, for example, the GDPR, to give notice to folks if there's unauthorized access to information. And those are those are things that, that it's just impossible for you to do um, on your own if you have to search for all of that information and try and figure it out from scratch. Um, so it really is a good idea to try and um, have that information, have your insurance information at hand so that you can try and put put stuff into place uh, in that worst-case scenario. Well, those are definitely some great tips. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate having those at the ready. Um, and you mentioned kind of international regulations as, it relate, as they relate to cybersecurity. And I think that kind of leads us into your presentation topic, um, I think the, top, the title is Clicking Confidential, Practical Guidance to Protect Cybersecurity and Ensure Cross-Border Data Privacy Compliance in Arbitration. Um, would you mind giving us a kind of a brief intro to your presentation? Sure. So um, the members of the panel uh, include um, Mark Morell, who I mentioned earlier is an arbitrator uh, and mediator uh, in New York, who I have worked with on a number of cybersecurity projects. Uh, and then we have uh, Sarah Reynolds, who is a, a partner at Mayor Brown, whose practice involves representing technology companies in international and domestic arbitrations. And then uh, Robert Levy, who is Executive Counsel, Legal Policy and Administration for Exxon Mobil Corporation. And, you know, the idea behind this panel, um, and uh, in particular by having Sarah and, and Robert involved, is that wanted to involve um, people whose practices routinely involve, you know, highly sensitive commercial in information from something like the technology uh, industry or, you know, Exxon, Exxon Mobil, you know, a company that's very, very focused on, on cybersecurity. 
and um, to put together then an interactive panel where we could start to talk about not just what the what the risks are, but really get a bit more into focusing on how it is that you plan and implement reasonable cybersecurity measures uh, in the context of an individual case. So, you know, what might a conversation look like between outside counsel and her client uh, around issues of cybersecurity and what um, measures might be adopted for the arbitration in, in order to uh, ensure that that the information that's being exchanged in the case uh, is adequately uh, protected. Uh, what happens if there are disputes between the parties um, about cybersecurity measures that should be adopted? Um, how does that kind of conversation play out? How might an arbitrator resolve that dispute? Um, how can an arbitrator raise cybersecurity issues with the parties for their consideration at a case management conference. Those are the kinds of uh, things that we wanted to talk about um, and then sort of, you know, in that context, get into discussions about what measures might make sense um, for a particular case, thinking about the nature of the information um, that is involved. And I think one question I had and I don't want to give too much away about your presentation. I'm not sure if this is something that you plan on discussing in detail, but especially in with international cases um, involving multiple jurisdictions, uh, how much does an arbitrator um, or counsel need to worry about cybersecurity regulations among the different jurisdictions? Should counsel be aware of each jurisdiction's uh, guidelines and best practices, best practices and regulations? Or is there some kind of international standard that's kind of set for the industry? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question, Adam. Um, because of the the GDPR, which is the the European uh, Data Protection uh, Regulation, we are now in a situation if you're practicing internationally where a huge number of of countries uh, are. Uh, quite concerned about data protection in a way that that they weren't um, before. And as an international uh, practitioner, the obligations when dealing with the collection uh, and transfer and, and storage of of data um, has become much more complicated. The the um, the data pr protection regulations. Um, very often um, will require that certain cybersecurity measures be adopted. Uh, and the, the touchstone, and, and I'd say this is the sort of one common theme on the international standard, and, and uh, I might have alluded to this before, but the touchstone is really to implement reasonable cybersecurity measures. So there is no one size that fits all. Um, you have to come up with adequate or appropriate or reasonable cybersecurity measures, taking into account all of the relevant uh, factors and risks that are involved. And so from the data privacy perspective, um, that is sort of the tie-in to the cybersecurity, uh, trying to get a handle on what the different regulations are, you know, across the globe um, is, is something that all of the big firms have practice groups on now and, uh, is a 
incredibly difficult, I think, for any anyone who's not practicing in that area to get fully on top of. What I would say in the context of an arbitration is that it means that if you are going to be, as counsel, for example, dealing with um, cross-border data, uh, you do have to start to think about what obligations um, that data might be subject to and what what mandatory obligations, therefore, you might have before you um, bring the data into another country, how you protect it um, in terms of cybersecurity, what steps you undertake, um, what notice might have to be given to witnesses, for example, um, about the collection and, and use of their of their information. Um, those are definitely issues that have to be discussed. There is no straight uh, international standard on that, but there are tools that are being developed um, to sort of help people develop a roadmap for how to think through these issues. So ICA and the IBA have recently um, announced that they are going to be releasing um, a so-called roadmap on, on data privacy that I believe is going to be published in uh, in mid-March. Um, and so we'll probably update our, our app, um, our ABA conference app, to add that to the materials when it becomes available. And that really just um, helps people to think through the issues rather than seeing what the ultimate answer is in terms of dealing with data privacy, but to help kind of identify how they go forward. And a similar tool specific to cybersecurity is uh, the ICA CPR New York City Bar uh, draft protocol on cybersecurity and international arbitration. That is um, that's something that provides a framework uh, to to parties and counsel and arbitrators to think through, again, the risks um, in their individual arbitration in order to determine what what measures might be reasonable for their particular case. Um, That's a tool that that I've been involved in in drafting as a member of the working group, as has Mark Morell, and we are in the process of revising that. Um, There having been a public consultation period until the end of December 2018, and a new version of that will be released, um, if not by the time of our conference panel, then, then shortly thereafter. So we'll be able to um, point practitioners to those tools and help uh, guide them um, in thinking about these issues. Well, Seth, you've certainly given us a lot to think about in terms of cybersecurity, and I'm sure you've got a lot of people thinking about questions to, to ask you at the panel. Um, but I I don't want to take up too much more of your time, um, so I want to thank you for for being on the podcast today and um, give you an opportunity to um, say anything else that you'd like to add before before we get going. Well, thanks for uh, for the chat and for the interest, and I look forward to seeing you uh, at the ABA spring meeting. So, Steph, your your presentation is on the 11th. Is that correct? That's correct. It's uh, at 1.30 in the afternoon on Thursday, April 11th. Great. I'm sure a lot of listeners will be there with a a lot of cybersecurity questions for you. And if any of the listeners want to reach out before, they can find you at cohenarbitration.com. That's right. All right. Well, thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today. It was a very interesting conversation. And I learned a lot about cybersecurity. So I'm going to go update all of my uh, computer apps right now. (laughs) Good stuff, Adam. Thank you so much. Thank you.
As we mentioned earlier, the Dispute Resolution Section's annual Spring Conference will be held in Minneapolis, Minnesota from April 11th to the 13th. You can register online by going to the Section's website and clicking on the Events tab. Steph, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. I'm sure our listeners learned a lot of great tips and advice on how to deal with cybersecurity issues in the modern world. I look forward to seeing you in Minneapolis.